TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Our guest this week is a writer, producer, award-winning director, and one of the most admired and versatile stage and screen actors of the last four decades. You've seen his work in hit TV series like Weeds, The West Wing, and Stranger Things. The made-for-TV movies What the Deaf Man Heard, Too Big to Fail, and the documentary Operation Varsity Blues, The College Admission Scandal, as well as HBO's and the band played on for which he was nominated for an Emmy as Outstanding Lead Actor in a Miniseries. But it's his work on the big screen that's brought him international acclaim and recognition in films such as Streamers, Vision Quest, Birdie, Baby It's You, Orphans, Married to the Mob, Memphis Bell, Shortcuts, Equinox, Any Given Sunday, The Dark Knight Rises, and Cutthroat Island. And of course, as the wise-cracking Private Joker in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 anti-war epic Full Metal Jacket. In a professional career that began way back when he saw a movie about the making of Oliver in his dad's drive-in theater, he'd eventually work with some of cinema's most esteemed actors and directors, including previously mentioned Stanley Kubrick, as well as Albert Finney, Gary Oldman, Sir Ian McKellen, Julianne Moore, Bruce Stern, John Schlesinger, Alan Parker, James Ivory, Spike Lee, Oliver Stone, Christopher Nolan, and Robert Altman, just to name a few. He's also achieved success as a writer and director, helming music videos, as well as award-winning short films such as Jesus Was a Commie, When I Was a Boy, and I Think I Thought. The guy even won the New Media Award for Best App for Matthew Modine's Full Metal Jacket Diary iPad App Project. But let's be honest, folks. For all of his numerous accomplishments, this man's 
most memorable work to date was sharing the screen with me, Gilbert Gottfried, in the 2004 screen classic, Funky Monkey. <laughs> Frank and I are excited oh, to welcome to the show one of our favorite artists and a man who says that a showing of the movie Midnight Cowboy practically led to his family being chased out of the state of Utah. <laughs> the multi-talented Matthew Moti. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew. We should stop right there. I mean, we can't. <laughs> That's go. it, we Matthew. That's the show. That's the show. Thanks for coming. Now, now <laughs> ever since word got out that we'd be interviewing you, the overwhelming messages we were getting was "fuck full metal jacket." We want to hear about Funky Monkey. <laughs> <laughs> so, since we have a lot to say about it, let's start now. Now, now, this was, you always hear about these films that were based on a foreign film. Now, it's based on a French film or a tad. Now, Funky Monkey, wasn't that originally a French film? Yeah, I think uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> so this it, was a second film. You know what the funny thing is? It was. Yes. We began filming in the south of France. and That's and. Right. Uh, yeah, they were supposed to bring chimpanzees from America to to that were trained in martial arts. These chimpanzees, oh, and, and the French said, uh, "No, no, we have chimpanzees. We don't need your chimpanzees. Use French chimpanzees." And um, <clears throat> so these chimpanzees who'd been trained to you know work on camera and do martial arts and stuff were brought to they were never allowed to in, immigrate into the uh, the south of France to work on the film. <laughs> And they, they they introduced me to a French chimpanzee and they said, uh, you know, you you please come in and meet her. And I said, it's OK. You know, so long as she does what you tell her to do, we're going to get along great. And I said, no, no, meet the chimpanzee. And they brought me into the room and immediately this chimpanzee was suspicious of me, that there was something about my size, my look, I, but I think she was uh, menopausal. She was going through the change. Oh God! And so she didn't like the way I looked when I came into the room. And um, I thought maybe like a dog, you shouldn't look directly into her eyes because she that may be a threatening sort of thing to do. So I looked away. And the guy kept saying, scratch her belly. She loves to have her belly scratched. Oh, I said, no, no, I really don't want to scratch her belly. She, she doesn't look like she likes me. No, no, scratch her belly. And I said, for God's sakes, and as soon as I put my hand to scratch her belly, she grabbed my arm and they're so incredibly strong. Yeah. strong. And right into her mouth, she bit me and wouldn't let go. And blood was coming out of my hand. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get HIV from a chimpanzee. And. And, and die in the south of France. And uh, so they decided that they weren't going to do that. They found a, uh, a, a small person and put them in a chimpanzee outfit. And everybody knows chimpanzees' heads are very small. And so to put a man inside of a monkey suit, a chimpanzee suit. So this was suit, a French midget in a monkey yeah. suit, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, with the 
the head put on top of his head, which was already quite large. Um, uh, he looked like he looked like a miniature King Kong, like a small person King Kong. And he was he was alcoholic and a chain smoking alcoholic and really angry. He almost killed us all in, in driving a, a truck and on the set. And then Warner Brothers finally saw the movie and they said, what the hell is happening? Like, what happened to that charming chimpanzee movie that we were making? And so that's how you and I met, Gilbert. They, yeah. they decided to reshoot all of this in San Diego that's right. and replace all of the stuff with the chimpanzees. Yeah, so, it's crazy. So it's my mother-in-law's favorite movie. Yeah. Your so, mother's favorite. Your mother-in-law's favorite movie is Funky Monkey. Yeah. And, and yeah. it wow. had a drunken, chain-smoking, angry French midget. <laughs> In a monkey suit. <laughs> yeah. I remember you told me, well, first of all, chimpanzees are horrible creatures. They're horrible. Yeah. They're they're cute when they're when they're infants. Yeah. But as soon as they realize how strong they are and that we're frightened of them, they they take advantage of that of that there, strength. There and... have been a few cases, one man and one woman, that they had their faces ripped off by chimpanzees yeah yeah and oh, lord and uh and and oh and they say some guy they mutilated his te his uh testicles testicles yeah i mean they, so so they're horrible so you got off easily man yes with well, just a bite. i tell you now i've never t told anybody this publicly <laughs> Um, the little, the young, the young kid that was in the movie, yes. he was working with the young female chimpanzee. They have doubles, yeah. And the the young female uh, was very cute, and and they don't feed them good food. They don't give them nuts and bananas and oranges or things like that. They give them candy. Oh, so that yeah, they're like little strung out junkies on sugar. <laughs> And so she'd been working with the boy and I came to the set and they said, you know, she's kind of tired and she's had too much candy. Would you feel comfortable working with, I want to say his name was Goliath. It was some, you know, some name yes. like that, some scary name. And we knew about the testicles being torn off and, <laughs> and tearing people's throats out. Would you, would you, would you be comfortable working with, with Goliath? And I said, yeah, I think it's going to be all right. Well, and he gives me a licorice vine, you know, and says, just give him a piece of candy and say good morning. So I, I squatted down and they opened the door and he looked at me, ran straight at me, pushed me. So I fell over oh. onto my back. He mounted me and he fucked me. He had a, di he had a diaper on, but he, he, he had hold of me and he had his way. He, and then once he pleasured himself, he he looked at me like, yeah, I just did that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I take so, back what I said. So you were you got fucked by a monkey, <laughs> chimpanzee. To be fair, I I think I think you might be our first guest who's ever been fucked by a monkey. Yeah. But yeah. again, we're he, not too he, sure about Larry Storch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I oh remember during the movie, there was one monkey strapped down to a surgery table, I think. It well, was. Dr. Spleen, you you only show up at the hour and nine minute mark, Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> you're hardly in it. <laughs> Thank God. 
and and he's uh, there was a monkey strapped down, and you said that this monkey looked at your hand when he saw the injury on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I got bit in the south of France, I had teeth marks. I still had them in my hand from from that uh, incident with the menopausal chimpanzee in the south of France. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, she she because they always are grooming. And when she was grooming, looking at my hand, she saw the teeth marks and she she looked up at me like, "You've been bitten by a chimpanzee." Like, wow. like she, she could she could recognize the teeth marks in my hand. Either that or she, I don't know, I don't know what That's she was fascinating. Yeah, it yeah. was fascinating. I, I watched the whole film. We, we, you know, we, we, we were going to have Matthew, I'll tell our listeners, we were going to have Matthew back in March. We had all, all kinds, Matthew was on, on sets and, and we, we couldn't connect and then he wound up in L.A. for a long period of time. Anyway, he's finally here, thankfully. But I watched Funky Monkey in preparation. <laughs> and because that's my job. Neither <laughs> Matthew or I have seen right. Funky Monkey. Which I resent, by the way, that I'm the one watching it. Our friend Jeffrey Tambor's in it, Gilbert. Oh, yes. And and our old friend Taylor Negron, too, who's a, was a lovely guy. Gilbert plays Dr. Spleen. He shows up at the hour and nine minute mark. Uh, and, uh, you know, Matthew's in the whole thing. I think you're in, I think you're in every scene. Why are you, why are you telling people that? (laughs) (laughs) But I loved your line. This is what you told me. You said it was a really fun children's movie and then disaster ensued. Mm. Yeah. So that's what you thought it was going to be when you, when you got it. I remember, I remember I was reading reviews of Funky. I never saw Funky Monkey, but I was reading reviews of Funky Monkey. And my favorite one was Matthew Modine once starred in a Stanley Kubrick film. (laughs) (laughs) How far he's fallen. Yeah. Oh, and before I forget, I have to mention this every time a chimpanzee is mentioned on this show. And I I heard, well, I think it started with uh, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, Matthew. But, Bra- brace yourself. <laughs> according to what I heard, uh, rich women in Hollywood had trained chimpanzees to perform cunnilingus on them. No. <laughs> Have you ever heard this? No. Because well, in 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 uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, the uh, uh, Billy the, Wilder, Billy Billy Wilder, said to uh, the actress, because there's a monkey funeral, a chimpanzee uh, dies, and she's having a funeral for it, and he says, "Remember, you are fucking the monkey." Do you remember the opening of Sunset Boulevard, Matthew? With the chimp- I don't remember. I don't remember them burying a chimpanzee. Yeah, Norma Desmond has a pet. Well, we assume it's a pet chimp. Yeah, and it opens yeah. with a chimp wake. Wow. Yeah. No, and- I didn't know. I I heard a really good story though. It was uh, uh, who was the the director that was the her butler driver, uh, the great German director. Oh, von Stroheim. Von Stroheim. Yeah. He said, you know, nobody ever made suggestions to Billy Wilder. The, the script was sacred and you didn't touch anything. But he said, but I had one idea. And so I went to Billy and I, I asked him, I said, I, th- I think it would be really interesting if when William Holden's character comes into the house and he finds me ironing, 
uh, and you know, there's this conversation between the two of them. He said, I'd like to be ironing her panties. And Billy Wilder said, for God's sakes, why, you know, like, <laughs> why do you want to be ironing his panties? And he said, I, I think it would say a lot without saying anything. And Billy said, absolutely not. We're not doing that. And Billy said it was the one regret that a bit of advice that he had received from an actor in, in von Stroheim's uh, Wow, case. that was a bridge too far. But Chimp Coitus, he was okay with. He was okay with Chimp Coitus. <laughs> yes. A yeah. cunnilingus chimps, I call it. I mean, imagine allowing that animal to get anywhere near with, you know, no, it's I mean, a, it's, it's it ill-advised. Just, ill-advised. They're horrible. Now, that's, that said, when I did, when I got raped by the chimpanzee, <laughs> he did bury his lips into my neck, kind of a gentle kind of French kiss in my neck. Oh, geez. And, and, and all that skin on the front, it looks kind of leathery, right? Yes. But it's it's like the softest skin on your body, you know. Like pick some place where the where your. It's. I mean, it was. This, oh Lord, I, I you know I've never asked this, but is it wrong that I liked it? <laughs> I'm 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 getting a semi wood just listening. Oh. To it. <laughs> Well, it's going to be tough to follow that story. Yeah, that's all. I'm telling you, that's all. I I don't want to know about Kubrick or Oldman or anything. I want to talk. See, you should have saved the story about getting fucked by a monkey for the end. Because now how can you follow that? Dude, dude, Gilbert and I were talking about the, we about how your family uh, ran movie theaters. In, in Utah, uh, drive-in yeah. theaters, which we're fascinated by. We talk we talk a lot about that subject on this show, especially the uh, the impending doom of movie theaters, which is something that comes up a lot here. I found it interesting. You said your dad would have gotten a kick out of the resurgence of drive-ins during the pandemic. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. He he would have loved uh, knowing that something that he loved so much uh, was coming back because at the end of his life, it was really. The only thing that was keeping uh, drive-in theaters alive was swap meets, flea markets, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on Saturdays and Sundays. And in fact, the one that we had in San Diego, they started having flea marks on Wednesday, you know, so it was Saturday, Sunday and Wednesday. Just to keep them going. But you grew up in that yeah. world. You grew up in that, in, uh, in the drive-in theater yeah. world back in Salt Lake yeah. City? Well, we, when my life began in Loma Linda, California, mm-hmm. and and uh, Loma Linda was beautiful. It was called the Cherry Pass, and we were surrounded by cherry trees. And we moved to Imperial Beach, where we had the South Bay Drive-In, and that was uh, 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 what watermelons and tomato fields. And then when he got transferred to Utah, I became a general manager of about a half dozen drive-ins and a couple movie theaters. Um, so we moved to Sugar House was the first place. Then we moved to Cottonwood and then Orem and then Springville and then Midvale. And then we got, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, with uh, Midnight Cowboy, uh, we, we got really run out. But it was it's more complicated than that. I'll tell you in a sec. But yeah, so the theater that we had when we first arrived at Utah was called the Lyric. And it was a, uh, a legitimate theater that had been turned into a, a movie theater. Oh, wow. And it was, yeah. So I was about five years old 
And, you know, during the summer, I'd go to work with my dad and wander around the theater, <clears throat> snooping around. And so you had the, the motion picture screen. And then behind that, there were flats that, you know, of painted backgrounds. So it'd be a New York City scene or Boston, and then a, a, a Western, these gigantic, you know, the size of a movie screen of, of painted backdrops. Uh, that would go all the way up into the ceiling, and, and they and then on the on the right side, which would be stage left, they had dressing rooms with mirrors and all the light bulbs around, and photographs. These eight by ten photographs of of these mysterious, handsome women and men. Uh, you know, they're eight by ten glossies that they'd left in the theater when they were touring. You know, touring with some. Oh, show. Wow, there was real history in the place. Oh yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was full of history. And then uh, Barefoot in the Park came out and Robert Redford came to do publicity and I met him. And it was fascinating to see the way that people uh, responded to him and the work that he did. And <clears throat> then we we moved to, to Midvale. We moved away from the, the theater. And uh, we were there we were surrounded by fruit trees. And so the reason I mentioned the, the plants and the trees uh, that we, the you know, the crops is that it was a very sensuous kind of childhood that we, you know, you in the fall, the rotting fruits that were falling to the ground and you'd walk through those fields to go to school in the summertime. I mean, I mean in the in the spring when you, or the fall, when you'd start to go to school, uh, you know, in, through the tomato fields or the cantaloupes or the cherries, all that stuff, it, it, it made such a big impact on my, on my, my psyche, because then they started tearing the drive-ins down. The reason we were moving from drive-in to drive-in, well, the theater, they took, the Mormon church took the theater back and it turned it back into a legitimate theater. Um, and then the drive-ins, we kept moving because they were tearing the drive-ins down I and see. building and building subdivisions and tearing out all of those crops, all of the tomatoes, all of the, the watermelons, all of the cherry trees and the pear trees and the apple trees, everything got bulldozed. And and it was not coincident. Well, coincidentally, not coincidentally, around the same time that that song, "Pave Paradise," put up a parking lot. Oh yeah, and and so Big you know, I do a, a lot of environmental work, and I know that my environmentalism is rooted in the disappearance of of the natural world. You know that that happened, which is not really a natural world; it's an unnatural world because they were farms. You know, so there's something unnatural about it, but you know what I mean. It sounds and, kind of and, idyllic. But the funny thing is, it's like not—I mean, not funny. It's sad that I—it's like movie theaters are going the way of vaudeville. I—I mm. I think it's going to be like nowadays. It's going to be. I heard there were these places that you left your house to yeah. see a well, movie. Matthew, Matthews in New York are like us. You've seen all the places that have shuttered. In oh the, yeah. In the last, I want to say, no, I can't when, blame it on the pandemic. It's been going on for decades. Yeah, from the time that I moved to New York City till now, the the theaters that were on Bleecker Street, the yep. theaters that, on the Upper West Side, where you could go see, you know, it, like now you have the Criterion Channel. Why do you need a, a theater that plays the kind of movies the Criterion yep. plays? Eighth you know? Street Playhouse, by the way, where I saw Full Metal Jacket. Oh wow! Remember the Eighth Street Playhouse? Yeah. yeah. Remember, it's in a Woody Allen movie, that a theater that was up on the Upper West Side. The Thalia. Story. What was it? I think it was The Thalia. Yeah. I yeah. Was you, West you, 90s. You said in an interview you were working with Robert Altman, and you were, you know, you were a young actor, you were terrified 
of how to play the scene. And and you kept trying to get him to tell you. Yeah. Oh, that's streamers. Yeah, it was it was uh, streamers. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I did auditioned for the movie ten times, I think, and and I I told him finally told him I I can't do this anymore, Bob. I'm I'm going crazy. You know, I I I, I don't know I don't know what you want. And he said, Don't worry about it. You're going to be in the picture. So. I got the I got the part in the movie to play Billy, and um, there was a big monologue. And obviously, this was one of the first films that I'd ever done. And I was very nervous about like what what is it that Billy is is saying to Richie, which was played by Mitchell Lichtenstein, and David Allen Greer was in the movie. Michael Wright was in the movie. I think you worked with David Allen before Gilbert. Oh yeah, yeah, and and. Uh, um, it's, I say, so it, it was, let's say it was a Monday. I say, Bob, could I talk to you about this monologue? He goes, Oh Jesus, are we shooting that today? And I said, no, no, we, we, we shoot it Friday. He goes, Oh God, you scared me. He said, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And so I said, yeah, sure. Mr. Altman, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Tomorrow comes. And I said, Mr. Altman, could I talk to you about that monologue? Right, right. We're shooting it Friday. We'll talk about it tomorrow. And it, it, so every day we'll talk about it tomorrow. And then Friday came and I said, Bob, could I talk to you about the scene? Yeah. Hold on a sec. Let, let me just ask you a question. What are you going to do in this scene? And I said, what do you mean? What am I going to do? Cause you know, where, where are you going to be? What do you, what do you imagine yourself doing? And I said, well, I, I'm, I imagine I'm sitting in my bed and it's a movie about the army and I am in my cot inside of the barracks. And uh, I'm in my cot and maybe, you know, someplace in the middle of it, I sit up and, you know, put my boots on. He goes, OK, good. He goes uh, to Mitchell Lichtenstein. If Modine does that, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I think uh, I'll, he was a gay character. And he says, I'll put on a kimono and my wooden clogs and and sort of lean against the bed and flirt with Billy. My character's name is Billy. He goes, okay, good. Uh, Pierre, who was the cinematographer, how do you want to shoot it? He said, well, maybe we put the camera on this jib arm and move the camera around. Okay, good. Uh, I have to make a phone call. I'll be right back. I said, uh, Bob, could I talk to you about the scene? He goes, yeah, yeah, w uh, when I get back. And he's going out the door and he goes, we shoot Modine first. And he comes back. He goes, okay, let's roll. And I'm sick. I'm just sick to my stomach because I... I he, he, he wouldn't have this conversation with me. And we did the scene and he said, okay, let's do it right away. Let's go again. And we shot it again. And he says, good, we got it. Let's move on. And he, I, I was lying in the bed, just re, I'm not kidding you. I just was sick to myself, sick to, sick to my stomach. And he sat down on the bed and he said, you see, if I was interested in my opinion or my point of view about the character, I would have played the part. He says, I cast you because I thought you were an interesting actor and that you could, you know, find the truth of the character and tell the story. And you did it. You did good. He goes, okay. And it was a, it was a very important lesson because I'd studied with, with Stella Adler here in New York, had studied acting with her. And she used to always say that if you wait for a director to tell you what to do, you, you're, you've lost. You, you, you have to do the homework. You have to do the preparation. You have to try to understand the character on your on your own and bring your truth because 
if if Gilbert was playing the part, he would play it differently than than I would. I'd like to see the, that because of the, <laughs> the circumstances of his life and his sense of humor, the way that he 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 views something. So he he's just going to tell the, the the this this take the same words, and it's going to come out uh, in a in a different fashion, and and that's the 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 beauty of of storytelling is is taking the same story uh like that famous joke and everybody telling the same joke oh, the aristocrats, oh, the aristocrats joke, yeah, yeah the aristocrats doing it a little bit differently right well you said that's an actor's job isn't it that that in, interpreting bringing their own life experience to a role i heard you say that that you think a big mistake that actors make or people when they uh, performers when they become famous is they tend to isolate yeah and they, they stop interacting with 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 regular people and so yeah they, you're yeah, you're a person. You're telling the story of the human condition, you know. And what 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 is that? So you start pri- flying around on private jets and living behind big uh, big gates and and not being in touch with people. You sort of become separate from them, and um, that's all we are as storytellers. It's uh, you know observing life mm-hmm. and and finding the best way to interpret it. You know, because we're all asking the same questions. You know, how did we get here? What, where did we come from? Where are we going? What happens after we die? Uh, you know, what is love? Of course. You know. The- so lay off the private jets, Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> get in touch with the common people. And and you you also said, like a lot of guests that we've had on this podcast, that you had to learn not to act. Yeah, there, there, who's that uh, acting teacher? Uh, Iskin, Iskin, Briskin. I can't. He worked with. Um, oh, I can't think. Of, I want to say Phoebe Cates' husband, um, Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein, well done. Uh, uh, he Harold Guskin, I think, is his name. Harold Guskin, and he said, uh, you know, that the whole trick of acting is not to get caught acting, you know, not to, and you're, you know, Gilbert will laugh and, and be self, uh, self mocking about it. But Gilbert's a wonderful actor because he never feels like he's acting, you know, he's, he's telling a story. Um, and with his sensibilities and, but I've never felt like Gilbert had memorized some lines and was repeating words you know, they, they always come from some place that uh, is very truthful and believable, and and that's that's what that's what you want to do is 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 not not get caught acting. How about you know? that, Gil? What Jeez. a compliment! I don't want to hear anything else. <laughs> you know, Matthew, we we've asked. Yeah. Pe- Thank you, Matthew. We've asked people yeah. on this show like Griffin Dunn, like Treat Williams, like like uh, Beverly D'Angelo. Could Gilbert play a dramatic role? Could he play an Arthur Miller character? Hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah. I cast Wally Shawn. I directed a production of Twelve Angry Men to to play the the Henry Fonda part, and that we know from the film. And mm-hmm. he said, "Matthew, I don't understand why you want me to play this character. I'm a communist, and you want me to play him." I said, "That's why I want you to play the part because because of all, everything that Wallace Shawn is." And it's interesting when you look at the text of Twelve Angry Men. It's more interesting that that he's somebody who is not like a Henry Fonda, not somebody who you look at and and you know you don't look at Wallace Shawn and think he's a 
powerful, noble character. Right. But he is. You know, he's got tremendous integrity, incredibly brilliant, you know, bright man. And uh, and just because of the physical uh, the the physical being that he is, or that that he has a, a, a I don't want to call it a speech impediment because it's not an impediment; it's just a different way of speaking. Um, he was brilliant, and it was F. Murray Abraham was the last one to go. That in the in the film was was uh, uh, what's his name. Uh, He's a real cantankerous son of a bitch. What in the Fonda uh, film? Yeah, Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was played by F. Murray Abraham. And what Kevin, interesting casting! Yeah, Kevin O'Connor was in the, was in it. Right. And, uh, you yeah, directed it was, Kevin O'Connor in your feature. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and well if, done. If Dog Rabbit. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. How did you like directing uh, the late John Hurt? We can ask you about too, another wonderful yeah. actor. But Bruce Dern, we had here. Uh, How, how'd you like directing Bruce Dern? It was a th thrill of a lifetime, you mm -hmm. know. And and you know, here I was, you know, saying action and him delivering an incredible performance, and um, you know, and bringing everything that. You know, I, I think the first movie that I remember seeing him in was uh, The Cowboys. Oh, sure. And Where he, he kills, told me this. John kill, Wayne. Kill John Wayne, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was going to shoot. He kills him. He shoots and kills yeah, John Wayne. that's right. He said that John Wayne had never had uh, bullet hits on his body, you know, those explosive yes. blood packs and stuff. And he'd never had them. And he, he said John was really, he's a Duke. He said Duke was really scared having, having, those, <laughs> having those bullet hits on him. And he, he was drinking he was drinking whiskey and, and he 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 was passing by my dressing room and he opened the door and he said they're going to hate you they're going to hate you that's right yeah. and they did man yeah, he, that's a good yeah. little crime picture that I recommend to our listeners Gilbert it, yeah. Ma Matthew's film If Dog Rabbit with a great cast David Keith and Julie Newmar and Julie Newmar. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, here. killing John Wayne, that's like someone killing America. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, Dern Dern was was a wonderful guest. He was fun for us. He was yeah. and he's got Hitchcock stories. He's one of the few you know, uh, surviving actors. Coming so, home, right? Coming home. Oh, and coming home. Oh, oh, yes. Sure. I mean yeah. so many, so and, many performances. It was was uh the thing with two heads. I think was uh, Bruce Dern. I don't know that he's particularly proud of. Is is is, is, it, is it that one he was in or the Incredible Two Headed Transplant? I th the I Incredible the, Two Headed Transplant. What's the one with Ray Milland? Okay, I got and them back. Rosie <laughs> I got them back. Do, do, do tell us because people say, "Oh, you know, you guys tease things in the intro and then you don't you don't explain them in the course of the show." So, on the subject of your dad and drive-ins, tell us at least an, or give us an, an abridged version of what happened with Midnight Cowboy. And did you ever tell that story to Schlesinger when you worked with him? I didn't. Uh, I should have done. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't remember. Yeah, because John Schlesinger was really, really mean to me. He was. Was he? 
Yeah, he was. He said afterward, he was he was very sweet afterward after the movie was finished. And Pacific said, Heights for our listeners. I our said listeners. I was. Yeah, I was. I was having such a difficult time with Melanie, and I was under so much pressure to finish the film with Michael because I think Michael was getting a million dollars a week or something to do to do the film because it was after Batman, and so mm -hmm. he, his price was really high. So he was on. He said I was under a lot of pressure, and I needed someone that I could take my anger out on. And well, you, you just were so nice. So, <laughs> oh my! <laughs> Why me? Why so you you were punished for being nice. I was punished for being nice. Yeah. Unfair. Yeah, he was awful. It was awful. But but I'm 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 glad that he was apologetic afterward. So what happened? Uh, it, it began earlier. My dad became a bishop at the Mormon church because my grandmother, his mother, said that it would be good for business living in Utah if you got involved with the Mormon church. So my dad became uh, a bishop at the at the church, and they were sending, they have these things, these men quorums where the men are sitting around a table talking, and the women, of course, are in the other room baking cookies. And uh, they were sending two young Mormon boys to Japan and uh, to do missionary work. And my dad said, well, let's have a hypothetical conversation about those two young boys, those two young Mormon boys in Japan. And the, the men around the table said, a, com a hypothetical conversation about what, Brother Modine? And he said, well, like, what happens if they encounter two young Buddhists? He said there was a big silence at the table. He said, yes, they encountered two young Buddhists. And then what? And my dad said, well, do they talk about the history of Buddhism, the similarities of Buddhism and Christianity, the antiquity of it, that's much older than Christianity? And, and uh, they said, well, no, no, the two young Mormons are there to convert the two Buddhists and end of story, period. And my dad said, okay, I'm done. I'm out. And he left. He left the church. And wow. so they were angry. They were angry at him for, for questioning. I see. The, you know, the the origins of spiritual teachings. And um, and then my brother Mark came back from Vietnam and was living in Ogden up in northern Utah. And he decided to grow a row of corn and a row of marijuana, a row of corn, a row of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, corn, the corn was sort of here and the marijuana was like here. And, and uh, his name was also Mark Modine, uh, as my father's was, Mark Modine Sr., Mark Modine Jr. And he got arrested for, for cultiv cultivation of marijuana, which was on the front page of the Salt Lake Tribune. Wow. And it, I, think the, I think the headline was, corn doesn't grow as high as officer's eye. That's my memory of it. And and uh, so my brother got in trouble. He he got let off the hook because because he'd just come back from Vietnam and he's a veteran. So they let him off the hook and he was white. Um, he, he still is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, then we were playing Midnight Cowboy at the drive-in, which was, is, was, I don't know if it still is, it was rated X. Yeah, uh, originally. And, and so the church got really mad. 
that we were playing an X-rated movie outdoors where people might drive by and see something illicit, you know, solicit on the, <laughs> on the, on the screen. So they, they got mad at us for that. And then my brother, and it just made, we suddenly got really sort of nervous living. It was kind of like living in Wisconsin today. Um, <laughs> that, you, that might, might, might be unconnected to anything when you air this, but um uh, but yeah, so we we moved back to Imperial Beach. So the the Midnight Cowboy was just the tipping point because they were already pissed off because your father yeah. had kind of thumbed his nose at the church, and then your brother showed up with the the pot plants. Yeah. Exactly the the Rogers and Hammerstein reference. And now I have to ask you about a woman I've been trying to get on this show for a few years now. Uh oh, Papillon Susu, better known as Miso Horny. <laughs> Me love me love you long time. Is this unlike any interview you've ever done, Matthew? <laughs> it certainly is. Do you think she's still around? She's still around. We, oh, oh my God! Let me. Our our obsessed fans, since Gilbert's been talking about her for seven years on this show, our obsessed fans did a little digging, and she is, I believe, a physician living in the UK. A physician of some. Well, I, I was she heard. a massage therapist or, or chiropractor, something of that nature. A massage nature. therapist. Well, okay. for, I, for I, an extra thirty dollars, legitimate, you, you could get a happy ending. Oh, come on, from Papillon Susu. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I think I think she's a legit health worker. I heard it's not not totally legit. I heard it's some kind of spiritual healing. Is that what you heard? And, yeah, uh, some some kind of bullshit. I got thing. bad info. But. Oh, yeah. tell Would you us, be shocked tell if Matthew her. didn't stay in touch with her all these years? <laughs> it's been forty years. You, you know, this is terrible. It's terrible. That was it when we were making Full Metal Jacket. It was kind of the height of HIV or AIDS, and we. It was still that period of time when we didn't know how it was being spread. That people were frightened. It could be. It could be, uh, you know, door handles. It could be people sneezing. It could be, you know, we nobody, nobody yeah. knew how it was being spread. And I had just become a, a, a new father. My son was born and we were making the film and we, we added a scene that's not in the film where Papillon, it's, uh, you know, after we negotiate and that kid steals the camera and rides away on a motorcycle, uh, Stanley called me up and he, he said, you know, the movie's really good. It was at a Christmas during Christmas break. It was I was in England for almost two years making the film. Incredible. It was it was at Christmas time. And he said, I'm really happy with the movie. It's really good. And and I, we've got everything. I said, yeah, we got everything but a sex scene. He said, what do you mean a sex scene? And I said, well, you know, it, the movie, it's funny, it, it, but it doesn't have a sex scene. He was what about the motorbike hooker? What about Papillon Susu negotiating on the street? I say, yeah, that's it. If I negotiate with her, the, the, the motorbike cooker scene, you know, it's about the guys, you know, Alabama black snake and, and right. you know, all, all that stuff. I said, it's, but there's no sex scene. And he goes, oh, he got really angry. He hang up the phone. And about a month later, he came and he gave me a scene and he says, here's the new scene. And I said, what is it? He goes, what do you mean? What is it? It was your idea. And I said, what, what, what is it? He goes, it's the sex scene that you talked about. And I read this and, and it, so it, it's after, 
I pick up the motorbike or, or the the prostitute, and we were in a in a kind of French pagoda, and obviously in in Vietnam, in Hanoi, and uh, she's on top of me. He says so she's she's mounted on my back, and she's rubbing my shoulders. She's nude. You're nude, and I was nude, lying on my on my back on my stomach. She's massaging me, which makes me think you're probably right. Maybe she's a massage therapist. <laughs> I don't know, but we don't, and we don't mean, by the way, to imply that she's any kind of uh, sex worker. No, we don't <laughs> imply that she's no, no. no. no I, she is. I believe she's a professional, a medical <laughs> professional. And and uh, so she's naked with her legs spread across my back and sitting on my ass, right? And we don't know how HIV is spreading. And I got really nervous about having her vagina on <laughs> on a open, you know, uh, on my my ass. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. I, I can't believe I'm telling you this story. And Stan, and so I'm and I'm telling this, and it's just awkward when I'm talking to Stanley Kubrick, and we're on set, and I'm asking him about this. He goes, "Yeah, okay. She's 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 sitting on your back, yeah." And I said, but her her vagina is like right on my ass. And I don't know where she was last night. I don't know where she was two hours ago. And he goes, what are you talking about? What are you implying? I said, I just think that it'd be nice if there was some kind of something separating her vagina from my ass. A tarpaulin. He goes, I don't want to talk about this. This is disgusting. He says, if you have a problem with it, you sort it out. So I asked Papillon, I said, do you think I could put just a little washcloth on my on my back and you could sit on that? And she said, yeah, I don't, I don't mind. So we shot it. And then Stanley called me, you know, seven, eight months later after he was editing the movie. And he said, I'm cutting the scene out of the movie. And I said, oh, that's terrible. It was it was a good scene. He goes, yeah, he goes, but I can't look at the scene and not see the washcloth and think that she was so kind after you having ejaculated in her that she put a washcloth to stop your sperm from spilling down your ass. That's what Stanley Stanley. <laughs> wow. I think, I think I'd pay money to hear Stanley Kubrick say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So where where can I find this this nude scene of Happy Hunting? Mr. Skin has it. <laughs> There's no outtakes from Kubrick. Unbelievable! Movies. The the, yeah. the things that Matthew is bringing with him today. <laughs> no, You're firing on all cylinders. <laughs> what well, you know? You said the thing about about Stanley, who you got to know. I'm calling him Stanley, like I know the man. You got to know him fairly well and stayed in touch with him for years. Yeah, I stayed in touch with him until until uh, uh, I, I'd seen it happen many times on set when I was talking to him and somebody would come and and uh, interrupt us. Mm -hmm. And he would get so angry that somebody had the audacity. Did you see who I'm talking to? I'm talking to Matthew. I'm busy. You know, and I was like, you know, he's don't no, Stanley, I'll go away. Just, you know, the guy, it's it's a really important conversation. He's he's the armorer and he's talking about weapons, or he's it's a set de decorator trying to get a question, you know, to answer before we film the scene. And and I, he I, he could be so he could, I mean, the thing that was flattering about it was that it was he felt that you were so important that he needed to give you his undivided attention and that, you know, obviously you should give you give him your undivided attention. 
Um, and so after we had finished the movie, I was just sitting right over there and I, I called him because I'd sent him some some camera equipment that that was new. It was some new 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 bit new new machines that had, and he didn't have them on his uh, when we were shooting Full Metal Jacket. And I thought, oh, Stanley would really appreciate these things. So I I bought them and sent them to him, and I called him to ask if he'd tried it out. And I, he answered the phone. He goes, Yeah, hello. I said, Hey, Stanley, it's Matthew. He goes, Oh, Matthew, I'm I'm really busy right now. Can I call you back? And I, I, I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, uh, I'll call you back. Don't, don't worry about it. And he hung up the phone. And I, that was the last conversation I had with him, that he, he had started doing Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, that's too bad. And, and uh, I knew that, that I was just going to be a distraction for him. And uh, I, I, you know, I didn't, wa- didn't want to be that, that person who interrupted him from his work. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew how important that was to him. And the next phone call I got uh, uh, regarding Stanley, he was was Michael Hare, the person who wrote the screenplay, calling me to tell me that Stanley had passed away. Um, he did stay in touch with my wife because his daughter Vivian had moved to, to New York, and um, he was always hoping that that my wife uh, would would look out for her, you know, make sure that that she was safe and. Um, you know, I think it's important because you guys know this, but but Stanley was from the Bronx. Yes, you know? New Yorker. And, yeah, and he he used to play chess right over there in Washington Square Park, mm-hmm. and and uh, just 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 a few hundred yards and, from and a pretty, where a I'm pretty sitting. fair still photographer too. <clears throat> very very good still yes, photographer. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And tell us, was it Val Kilmer? Who got you the part in film Full Metal Jack indirectly? Indirectly, indirectly, yeah, yeah. yeah I was <clears throat> I was with David Alan Greer, and it was after we had we'd done what we were talking about before Streamers, the Robert Altman movie, and we had just won this unprecedented Best Actor award at the Venice Film Festival in Italy, and uh, uh, we were sitting in the in the booth that in the movie Annie Hall, uh, where Woody Allen puts the Cadillac in reverse, but think, oh my he God. thinks that he's was, put it in reverse. You mean that in, health food in, restaurant in LA? Yeah. The Source. Yeah, it was called The Source. Yeah, yeah. sure. I ate yeah. there. On, yeah. on Sunset. We, exactly, on right. Sunset Boulevard. And David and I were sitting there, and we were laughing about the movie and how it's funny in movies when a car drives into a restaurant, but in real life, people get crushed. And killed, you know, and we were hoping Woody Allen was back in New New York and not, you know, anywhere near the source, driving around in a Cadillac, and and so we were joking and laughing about eating, eating pancakes, and there was a guy sitting o- over there looking at me, and he was clearly looking at me, going like, "Fuck you, man, fuck you," and, and I, 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 I said to David, I said, "Let's that guy, let's this, let's this guy's an actor, or uh, he's learning a monologue." Uh, you know, I, I, or he's got Tourette's. He's clearly <laughs> looking at me and and telling me to go fuck myself. And so David looked up over his shoulder and he goes, "Oh, he says that's Val Kilmer. He's a really nice guy." And and David had worked with him, I guess, uh, helping him to learn songs and kind of musical comedy kind of stuff okay. for Top Secret. Oh, yes. oh yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, Very so they were movie. they were friends, and so I he went over and started talking to Val, and then he asked me to come over, 
And I said, hey, my name's Matthew. He goes, yeah, I know who you are. I'm sick of you, man. I'm sick of you. And I said, look, I'm the youngest of seven kids. I, I, I've been fighting my whole life. If you have a problem with me, you can just take it outside. And David's, oh, hey, come on, you know, knock it off, <laughs> stop this. And, and so, he, he, you know what it was, was Val was probably auditioning for the same parts that I was. And, and I, I had been on a, a really good role at that point. I had done Vision Quest mm -hmm. and Birdie mm -hmm. and Mrs. Sofal and maybe even private school. Maybe he auditioned for private school. Um, so, and he, he said, and now you're doing Full Metal Jacket, you know? And so I said, well, I, I said, I'm not gonna apologize for the work that I've been getting, but uh, I can assure you that I, I'm not doing Full Metal Jacket because you had to audition. You had to get a video, you know, VHS and, and film yourself and, and, and send this uh, tape to Stanley Kubrick. And I said, I didn't do it. You know, you must have, you clearly did because you're really upset. And, <laughs> and uh, um, so of course, what did I do when I finished my pancakes? I went outside and put a bunch of quarters in the payphone and called up my manager in New York. And I said, this guy, Val Kilmer just told me I'm doing Stanley Kubrick's full metal jacket. Do you know anything about it? He said, no, I don't know anything about it. I said, well, I know he makes his movies with Warner brothers. Uh, I could call Harold Becker, the director of Vision Quest, and, and ask him to send Full Metal Jacket to Kubrick. And I'll call Alan Parker, who's editing Birdie in London right now, and ask him to send Stanley some scenes from the movie and, and see what happens. He said, that's a great, great idea. So we did that. And then about, I don't know, a month later, I was back here in New York and uh, a script went through my mail slot and it was a letter from Stanley Kubrick that said, hello, my name is Stanley Kubrick. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I wonder if you'd consider, uh, uh, you know, participating in my film. Wow. How, yeah, how, I mean, how it was great as, that he wasn't was even as humble as that, Yeah, I was going to say, he didn't even presume that you knew who he was. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah that's very, very Stanley Kubrick. Now, let's talk about private school. <laughs> Which I think I think it's one from of the from private joker to private school. Very one of, nicely. One of the better of the eighties uh teen jerks. You've seen yes. private school, Gilbert? Oh, a few times. Wow. Phoebe Cates and Betsy Russell. Yeah. Why wouldn't I see it? Because <laughs> when you have a guy in front of you who worked with Stanley Kubrick, yeah. you gotta know about private school. <laughs> And I think, I think, I, I I brought that up to you, that I was a fan of private school. And and you had like, um, what, like one of those large uh, discs, what are they called? Oh, the laser disc? A, you had a laser disc in your car, in your trunk. You went to your car <laughs> and you showed me a laser disc of that. private school. Yeah. <laughs> Where I wonder why I had it and where I got it. I, I've driving had, around with that. I've never had a laser disc player in in my life. I'm, I must have got it like you know in the discount bin at you know Walmart or something. Yeah. It's a funny movie, you know. It, it it Jerry Zachs was hired to be the director, but he didn't. He felt really uncomfortable because he had never directed a movie. So they hired him to be the dialogue, the dialogue coach. 
and uh, the director, he'd won a film, uh, won the prize at the Cannes Film Festival for a short film that he made called Skater Dater. So Jerry Zaks is is one of the most celebrated uh, theater directors yeah, in New sure York. Is. You know, he's he's legend, and uh, you know he's got a closet full of Tony Awards. Um, so Noel Black was the guy that won the prize for directing Skater Dater at, at, it's a good film about kids in Southern California. There's no dialogue, just skating around and young love uh, in the, when skateboards still had still steel wheels. Um, Is that the uh, same Noel Black that directed Pretty Poison with Tuesday yeah. Weld? Yeah. Well, that's a good picture. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Laszlo was the cinematographer. Laszlo he, Kovacs? I did not no. I don't, no. What was his name? I can't think of his name. He was the cinematographer on Tom Jones, and he—I think he'd won the Academy Award for cinematography on wow. Tom Jones. Um, High price talent. Here. Yeah, it yeah. was it was crazy. The 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 people that that worked worked on it. Jonathan Prince was in an elevator with. Um, uh, shoot, what's his name? God. Uh, he played God, and the. Uh, the great comedian uh, with a cigar. Oh, George Burns. Yep. George Burns. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said he was in the elevator. He was in Las Vegas for something, and he was 18 years old, 19 years old, and uh, George Burns got in the elevator, and he looked at him. He said, what do you got for me, kid? And, <laughs> and without, you know, without missing a beat, Jonathan said, well, you know, Mr. Burns, it's such a coincidence that I meet you. I've been working on the screenplay that you'd be perfect for. He goes, okay, I'll meet you for breakfast. And he he went up to his room and wrote this 18 again. Oh, Is yes. That what wow. Yes. What a great story. Yeah. Ah, what a great story. And he story. Went, worked on it all night long, came down, pitched it to, to George Burns, and they made the movie. I mean, the, 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 the talent pool that was involved with the making of private school is kind of incredible. Yeah, it's an it's an A list production and, as it turns and, out. And do you have any stories about either Phoebe Cates or Betsy Russell? Uh, <laughs> not that I can share. <laughs> <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast and people and, could see Matthew's face. And I I remember eighteen again. Uh, George Burns sings the theme song. Yep. To the movie, I wish I was eighteen again, <laughs> doing things that I used to do then. But old folks and old oaks go old and pretend. I wish I was eighteen again. Fantastic! I can't believe you know the words to that <laughs> song. Insane, Matthew. Don't get us started. What about the theme to private school, Gilbert? Can you do that one? Oh, oh. Uh, what, There's well, some good sorry, music in the movie Wait. too, right? There's some good songs. He'll do it. See, see I'm thinking of the other Phoebe Cates uh, movie that was uh, Paradise. Oh yes, I, that was uh, the Blue Lagoon. Rip when off. I'm with you, it's paradise. No place on earth can be so nice <laughs> beneath the crystal waterfall. I hear you call. Now, give me. Can you give me? Can you give me some words? I know, I know. She sang the the private school theme. Oh, Phoebe. Yes, yes. But what she did? Do you know any of it? Because that'll I, bring you, it back to me. 
I got no clue. Didn't stick you in your head. You know who else we're leaving years. out? We're leaving out Ray, uh, my favorite Martian. He Ray Walston. Yes, yes. Ray Walston. Yeah. And Martin Mull. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Martin Mull and, was in the hey, movie. Mike McPadden hey. would be proud of this conversation. Wait, wait a second. You just walked in. Can you find the theme to private school? <laughs> Sung by Phoebe Case. Poor Dan. Yes. Thank you, Dan Spaventa. Because I bet you I'll know the words to this, because I remember she did sing it. While we're waiting. <laughs> you know, her father her, her father Bill produced Case. the Academy Awards yes, forever. Indeed. Yes, her, indeed. And, and uh, yeah, Phoebe Cates is a Chinese Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you, is that the mix? Yeah, I think we right, do. We wait. have it. Is this private school? Morning, girls, and attention. This is Mr. Foxy. You can see her walking down on the city street. That's not it. Nope, that's not it. The fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> we need the theme to private. school. He may school. not have it. Get the fuck out of here right now! <laughs> I don't want you. I'm sick to look at you. <laughs> he may not have it. Oh, take two. Oh, wait. This could be it. When you smile and hold out your hand. No. No. <laughs> I'm going to no. move on while Dan searches. This, this is wrong. <laughs> Let, Let me... him look for it. Let him look for a second. I'm going to use the restroom. Go ahead. <laughs> we'll wait for you. <laughs> Where's Rayburn when you need him? <laughs> He's still trying to answer a question from five years ago. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Danny. Yeah, but see, now it's killing me. No. They maybe not put it on the internet, Gil. Well, that, that Cates and Bill Ray. Try it. I don't think it was two people, but you could try it. When you smile. That's no, the same one. No, no. Matthew, first of all, an apology. We can't find the theme song. <laughs> to he, private. He looks school. heartbroken. He looks crestfallen. <laughs> But I know she sang it, and I know if I heard like three notes, I she could did. Sing it was it like too. the the closing credit song. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. He. he... I, I'll bet you everybody, all of our our listeners, uh, there are people there that are screaming out the lyrics to it. Well, well, they... we'll, we'll see if we can find it and insert it in post, Gil. Yes. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Let me ask Matthew a question from a listener. Kevin Watsy, does Matthew have thoughts on Jiminy Glick, Martin Short's character, Jiminy Glick, naming his kids after you? Uh, I mean, other than the fact that it's so incredibly uh, flattering. I, I wonder if the other one is Morgan Mason, James Mason's son. It yes. must be. Yes. And he was, yeah. Yes. A so, reference to James Mason's son. Yeah. Morgan and Mason and Matthew and Modine. Um, I, the only reason I can think that that uh, uh, what's his name Marty Martin Short. Short Martin Short did that was because 
we were, uh, Diane Keaton's a friend. She invited me to go to this animal rescue uh, dinner and they need to find homes and, and feed the animals. So um, <clears throat> the, it was a fundraiser, you know, to take care of the dogs and buy dog food and stuff. And they came over, I was sitting with Marty and Diane, and they come over and they said, hey, go up on the stage and tell some jokes, Modine. And I said, what? <laughs> Get up on the stage and tell some jokes. You know, and I, I was at the Whoopi Goldberg roast, the Friar oh, roast. You were the, oh, you were yeah. there. The, the Ted Danson, there. the infamous Ted Danson appearance. I was there. Wow. And that's when I learned that there's a gigantic chasm in between being someone who's like Ted Danson, who's charming and funny and stand-up comedy. That there, that is gigantic difference, you know. <laughs> well said. To, to, to be a stand-up comedian, you have to have, even if you're a woman, balls of steel and and uh, a sense of observation and sense of timing and sense of irony and uh, you know i mean it's it's a it's a huge difference yeah and i don't know if you guys knew about that friars were oh, oh yes. we know about it yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 it was we're both was we're not... both members of the and, friars it's impossible not to know and i heard it was whoopi goldberg's idea in the first place she said that. I, I think that she might have, uh, maybe. I don't know. It was I, a joke. She it was definitely a joke. was trying to save him from, yeah. you know, yeah. being burned at the stake. It was a joke between them that other people did not understand, and and the the press didn't even know the nature of the friars' roasts. Yeah, I I, I always thought what the was so was lost. what was so ridiculous about that and the trouble Ted Danson got in that got into was that. The fry is you're supposed to be offensive. That's the idea. Yeah. 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 That's a, it, the whole point. Offensiveness with affection. Yeah. yeah. And and it was. It yeah. was there, there you go. I mean, and, but you know, he his jokes were not going over at all. And then I remember uh, Robin Williams getting up and said, What were you thinking? <laughs> What are you thinking? He said, maybe we should take you up to 125th Street in Harlem, drop you off and see how funny you think that outfit is. And oh, that's Lord. funny. That, that's that was funny. funny, you know. Very funny. Yeah. Let, let's ask you about Orphans, one of my favorite Modine okay. performances. I don't remember how we got to where we that's were That's right okay. Now. Was, yeah. The show is totally we, schizophrenic. We, we were trying to remember the theme song to private. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it in post if we find it. But tell us about working with the late, great Albert Finney, who you worked with twice. And Orphans, by the way, is a film that more people need to see, and it was underserved by the studio. The, uh, the great Alan Pakula, and and yeah. one of your one of your finer moments, in my opinion. Thank you very much. That that movie, uh, we we thought we were going to win every Academy Award ever ever made with that film. That yeah. Albert was going to win Best Actor, and, and Kevin Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, it was you know Lyle Kessler's play that was adapted into yep. a screenplay, and you know Alan Pakula, he directed Clute and All the President's Men, Choice. So many. He was a producer of of To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, he's just he was a a, a monster, monstrous, monstrously successful producer director. Uh, such a great talent, such a smart man, and uh, you know, Albert. I was doing Full Metal Jacket uh, when Alan came over to London to ask me to come in to meet him and audition for him. 
And uh, so I went to see the play that Albert, he brought the production to England because he said, this is, this is what British theater needs. It, it needs something that's this alive and this raw. Gary Sinise was the director of the American production. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he directed the production in England. He must have. Yeah, he did. He did. And Kevin Anderson and Jeff Fahey was, uh, played my part. And when I saw the production, I said, I, I know that I could, I could do this really well. And, and so I auditioned and had a great time working on the, on the production, but I was terrible. Uh, when, when we, I got cast, I'm, I'm sorry, I got cast in the film and, uh, you, you know, don't forget, I had grown up in Utah, mm -hmm. uh, and on the other side of the Mississippi, like in that New York, that famous cover of the New York magazine, where it kind of turns into a desert. I don't even think Utah appears on the, on the map that Utah was just this weird place. And, uh, I thought Jew was a verb, you know, it was something <laughs> that, you, that you did. <laughs> And so when I, when I, when I moved to New York city and I got a job working at, at Herbie Lipke's restaurant, uh, and he was, you know, this conversation that we had uh, just today so far was more talking than I ever did in my life living in Utah. You know, it I was, it. It, Utah was, it was, if you said maybe three or four sentences in a day, you'd be exhausted from talking so much. It'd be like, hey, Gilbert. <laughs> hey. You know, you sort of look at the dirt. Look at look at your boots. Look, look at the sky. Watch the tumbleweed roll across the you know, landscape. And so Herbie was on the phone. And he was talking to his vegetable guy and pissed off about the quality of the vegetables and the price, price of the vegetables. He hung up the phone and I said, that was amazing. He said, what? I said, the way you Jewed that guy down. And I didn't get down. <laughs> down hadn't got out of my lips and he punched me in the face and he was on top of me. What is that? You fucking punk. And I said, what? That's what you were doing. You were doing. And he, beat, he just beat, beat me silly. And then I found a, a, a rabbi and I say, hey, can you explain to me what 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 this Jewish thing is? And and uh, he was a very sympathetic uh, older man, and he he gave me a whole, you know, it was it was like I could be bar bar mitzvah after he <laughs> after he gave me my, wow. after that lesson. Um, but so anyway, so I'm doing orphans, and I'm cast, and we're sitting at the table now, Kevin. Anderson had been doing the play for probably two and a half years. And, and Albert Finney had just won the uh, Lawrence Olivier Award for doing his, his interpretation, his, the, his production in England. So these people knew the play backward and forward. And now I'm coming in, the new person in the group, and I'm talking like I am now. And, <laughs> And the thing is with that character, if, oh, yeah. if, if Treat isn't a threat, if he's not a dangerous person, the whole thing falls, falls Absolutely. to bits. Absolutely. Dead end kid. He's be, yeah. Explosive, dangerous, angry, ignorant, and, you know, a cheap, petty thief and uh, like an animal, you know, who's, who's not been educated, you know, he's just, he's just, and he's mean to his little brother. 
And I could, I could see and I could feel the room that Alan Pakula was like, oh, God, I should have cast Matt Dillon. You know, I should have cast somebody, you know, other than this guy. And Albert Finney, and I, I could see him looking at, at Kevin Anderson, and and I thought, oh my God! Uh, and I'm, and it's a flop sweat, thinking I'm so terrible. And 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 I stood up and I said, I know this guy, I know him. And I, I said, it's Herbie Lipke. You know, come here, you fuck off, fucking kick your fucking ass. <laughs> and, and 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 Albert Finney jumped out of his chair and he goes, that's it. Now say the lines. And, and and so when we started production, uh, Alan Pakula, before he before he said action, he go, Modine, give me three. Come here, you fucks. Come here, you fuck. Come here, you fuck. And I had to say I had to say it before I'd walk in and do a scene. You know, give me three fucks. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And and, uh, you know, it was it was it was a great experience making the film. And and I, I, I just love Albert Finney. I did the second I worked with him the second time oh, on Brown the Browning version. Yeah. Yeah. In, in England, uh, just to have the, the pleasure of working with him again. What an actor and a, a good film. We would recommend it to our uh, to our listeners to find orphans. And, yeah. and before we got on the air, Frank told me you were punched. But you you've been punched a few times now by, by Lipke and also Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, my goodness, I haven't thought about that for a long time. Oliver Reed, that was during Cutthroat Island. Yes, uh, Chris Masterson, who was on Mal- Malcolm in the Middle, he was the one that was always away at college. Uh, Chris Masterson, he was uh, the young boy on the in this pirate movie I did with Gina Davis. And uh, now of what I've heard, I, I never saw cuts to Rhode Island, yeah. but I, I heard it. It makes Bunky Monkey look like <laughs> Citizen Kane. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun pirate movie. That's I, I mean, the, the, you'd think that we were trying to remake Gone with the Wind, the way that that movie was was critic, critic, critically re- received. And it's just. And I, I, they just had a screening. They invited me to go down to Winchester, Virginia, and they they did a, you know, like ten movie, Modinathon, and and Cutthroat Island That's was fun. one of the was one of the most well received films. People were like, why did this movie get so trashed? And I think it was just a little bit too early for uh, having an actress be an action hero. In a in a in a pirate movie that people just weren't prepared for that. Yeah, she had the so-called that. male role in a, yeah. in, in a way, and you you had the female part in a, in a way. Yes, I was the femme fatale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that the way the way it came across, but you you know what I mean. It, it and it's, I, a, it's a good point. It was probably too early for a female action hero. It was, and it's a, it's just a, it's a silly ass pirate movie. Frank Langella plays the baddie mm, in it. He's good. He's very good. And, and I, I had a, a, a great time making it, but so they had cast uh, Oliver Reed to play. It was just one scene or two scenes with, with Frank Langella uh, where he's his brother and they'd cast him. And I was so excited because I'd seen him in Oliver, you know, the, that movie that you mentioned that sure. my wanting to be an actor was, was seeing this documentary about the making of Oliver. And so 
and and the three musketeers yeah. you know and and i'd seen those those uh th- those things on british television the chat shows where oliver reed would go on he'd be drunk mm-hmm. and a famous he, he, drunk he would, he, would be, he would be so canceled today he would never you know there's no way that, that people would put up with somebody coming on the show completely you know a, a legendary that, drinker if, a legendary if, if we may yeah yeah so uh so i was sitting with chris it was his birthday party and and uh, the 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 film director rennie harland had put vodka out on all the tables and people were just getting plastered and oliver reed was he'd he'd flown in drunk and got drunker <laughs> you know and and so i said to chris i said let's go talk to let's go talk to uh well first time i should say during the day and I was really excited about meeting Oliver Reed and I was talking to the, I was practicing my sword fighting cause I'm a pirate sword fighting. And the stunt guys had worked with him on uh, three musketeers. And they said, why are you excited about meeting that cunt? And I said, why are you calling him a cunt? I said, oh, Oliver Reed, he's a cunt. And I said, no, he's a great actor. He goes, he's a cunt. And, and they said, you know, if you're having a drink, be careful where you put your drink down. He'll come over and he'll put his cock in your drink. And I said, what is wrong? What's wrong with you people? And they said, and if he does put his cock in your drink, have a good look at it. He's got eagle talons tattooed to the head of his penis. And I was like, so I'm sitting with Chris, Chris Masterson we're at, at, at his birthday party celebration and there's vodka everywhere. And I say, come on, Chris, let's go ask Oliver about the tattoo. And so we go and we sit down, we sit down next to him. He's got his, he's got his, his face on his arms. He's leaning on the table, you know, like he'd taken a nap at, at the, during the dinner the, for Chris Masterson's birthday party. And I said, hello, Oliver. Uh, my name's Matthew Modine. Uh, I'm one of the actors in the film. And he turned, he's, he, you know, he lifted his head up and he just punched me in the face. He just punched me. He goes, no, you're not. You're a fucking spy. And I said, no, I'm one of the actors. I'm one of the actors that's in the, in the movie. Wow. Wow. He goes, fucking cunts. And they say cunts a lot in England. Yeah, sure. And, 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 and we don't use that term over here. Well, it has a different meaning. Different meaning. Yeah. And so he punches me in the face. And, and so I said, hey, Oliver, you know, there's a lot of the, a lot of the guys that are working on the film, the stunt guys, they worked with you on, on, uh, Three Musketeers. He says, and I said, they, they said you had kind of a uh, special tattoo. And he, goes, and he pulls his sleeve up and he shows, he shows me his shoulder. And he's, he was a member of the British SAS. He was special forces like our underwater demolitions team. Whoa. So, yeah, really, I mean, not just a soldier or Marine, but like full on real deal kind of guy and i said oh no i said he said i you know the the guys they said you had a, a tattoo that I, I said i don't even want to ask you about it I, I, it was silly i know they were lying he goes <laughs> and he and he stood up and he pulled his cock out him he now being british he was he was uncircumcised <laughs> And he squeezed his cock and and the head of his penis popped out 
and there tattooed to the head of Oliver Stone, Oliver Reed's penis were eagle talons, fully articulated, drawn very beautifully. And he stuck it. He stuck his cock right in young Chris Masterson on his 16th birthday's face. And then he goes, and he put it back in his pants. <laughs> oh, oh, whoa. <laughs> Now that was in Malta, where you know, a few <laughs> years, a, a few story. years later, he would he would die while making Gladiator. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What a story! Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he he had his cock tattoo. The head that, of his yep. penis. That is a that is a courageous I mean, imagine, fellow. Im, imagine that what that would feel like. I mean, I don't have any tattoos, but. Jesus. Wow. That is a that is a hearty oh. soul. You had fun making that movie. I mean, you were in what Malta and Thailand and Malta and, and Thailand, yeah, yeah. yeah, in the PP Islands, yeah. yeah. You were shocked by the reviews. I heard you say in an interview. So it's because it was a it was a lark. It was supposed to be a lightweight adventure movie and the critics. Yeah. yeah took, I took it, it too seriously. The, and it was the first time I'd really been eviscerated by film critics. I was always kind of I, I guess the darling is the is the expression that people would use. You know, the critics darling. They sure. always said nice. They always said nice things. And so I, I when I, I was at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and they asked me, did I want the newspapers and the trade papers? And some old theater person had told me. They said, you know, never read reviews. If they're good, they'll kill you. If they're bad, they'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And so they asked me, did I want all the papers? And I said, no, no, I don't want any newspapers. Don't don't put anything outside my door. And when I woke up in the morning to go down, they used to have a really nice coffee shop on this on this on the west side of the Beverly Wilshire with the waitresses. They had those funny little things in their hair and the pink apron, you know, the white white apron with a pink outfit. You remember? I don't know if you guys. I never stayed that. at the Beverly Wilshire, but I I, I have an idea what you mean. <clears throat> yeah, it was just a good old fashioned coffee house, and nothing fancy, and. Uh, they put all the newspapers outside my door and I thought, oh, I'll just look at one of them. And it was horrible. It was so mean. It, it mostly toured the film and, and Gina and Rennie Harlan, but eviscerated the film. I thought, oh, Jesus. I looked at another one and it was worse than the, the worse than the one before. And, and then I looked at the trade papers and just completely trashing the, the film. And I went down to the coffee shop to have breakfast. And I felt like everybody in the restaurant, it's like when you smoked marijuana or something, you'd feel like everybody's, you feel completely paranoid and everybody's staring at you. And, and I just like conversation stopped and it felt like people were going, there he is. That's that guy. He's the one that's so bad in the movie. And it just, it just felt so like, and I, I felt bad. And I went back up to my room and, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? The whole world hates me now. And and I I wanted to hurt myself. I wanted to, like, I didn't want to kill myself, but I, I thought maybe if I hang myself in the bathroom and, you know, when the when the cleaning lady's coming to make the bed <laughs> so she can save me and, and tell people, like... <laughs> You wanted to make yourself a sympathetic character. Again? I wanted to make myself the sympathetic I character. I, mean, I, I understand. 
So you I, have I'm to sure time that I'm it not the, perfectly. <laughs> yeah. really funny. I'm sure I'm not the first person to wanted to, you know, but then you know what happens? You slip and then you hang yourself and people people think you were, you know, jerking off and yeah. hanging yourself. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> like, yeah. What is that? Was it auto erotic? Oh, asphyxi- asphyxiation. <laughs> I did. I did answer that a little too quickly, didn't I, Gilbert? <laughs> Pronunciation of that. You know, in the time oh. we have left, Matthew, and you are an entertaining fellow. I got a lot of cards here. We're never going to get to. Uh, Andrew Laposha has a question for you. Any good insults in the movie uh, for, from the great uh, Lee Ermey uh, in Full Metal Jacket that didn't make the cut? Doing research on this, I found out he was a poet, Lee yeah. Ermey. Yeah, which that took was, me by that... surprise. Yeah, it was. That's why that was such an important part of the the movie. When he goes, uh, combat correspondent, writer, you're not a writer. You're a killer, sir. Yes, sir. You know that that I'm a killer. Yeah. He goes, who do you think you are, Mickey Spillane? That's great. And so that was set up because we were going to have a scene when uh, I'm on night watch just before Leonard gets killed, and I'll go into. Uh, Lee Ermey's, uh, the, that would have been the first scene where we saw him without his hat on. And he would have been in his T-shirt and underwear. And uh, he says, so you think you're a writer? Sit down. I got something to read to you. And he reads me his poems. And these were poems that R. Lee Ermey had written. Wow. Um, and because we began the show talking about monkeys, the, the, <laughs> one, of the, one of the poems involved... Uh, uh, a woman who kept uh, kept the, her lover in this cage and, you know, she would go in and have sex with him at night and talk, you know, he wrote about his balls slapping against her butt and, and you know, <laughs> deeply plunging into her. But it was all quite poetic and, and lyrical. It was remarkably lyrical and poetic had been incredibly obscene and violent at the same time. Wow. And, wow. and, uh, and then, you know, she locks up the cage and you, re- you realize at the end, the punchline was that she was fucking an ape. And, um, and <laughs> so, and it was, and it was, it was funny. He's bookended it quite nicely there. This, this, yeah, this interview opened with get you getting fucked by a monkey, and it's wrapping up with a woman fucking a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, so Stanley wanted to get it in. And then he realized that thematically it wouldn't you can't go from that scene into me walking into the latrine and him blowing his brains out. You know, it just it just doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. So we we never filmed it. But they were they were funny poems, man. I'll bet. And yeah. I, I remember one of the things he yells at the soldiers is something like, you look like the kind of guy that fucks you in the ass and doesn't have the common decency to give you a reach around. around. <laughs> That's the best. Yeah. yeah. That was a, that was where he went up on his lines. He, he, he was, you know, doing insults and he forgot what it was that his scripted lines were. And he said that. 
that said, was yeah, a great yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, it was a great one. And, and none of us were expecting it. So when when it came out of his mouth, we were all standing there trying to get a mental picture of what he's talking about. <laughs> Fun, OK, you're the kind of guy that would fuck a guy in the ass and not even have the goddamn comic courtesy to give him a reach around. <laughs> That's right. And then, you know, and then we all started falling down laughing because it was it was, it was so funny. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, private joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. You little scumbag. I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and shit down your neck. Sir, yes, sir. Private Joker, why did you join my beloved corps? Sir, to kill, sir. So you're a killer. Sir, yes, sir. Let me see your war face. Sir, you got a war face? Ah! That's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit. You didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. What's your excuse? Sir, excuse for what, sir? I'm asking the fucking questions here, Private. Do you understand? Sir, yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. Can I be in charge for a while? Sir, yes, sir. Are you shook up? Are you nervous? Sir, I am, sir. Do I make you nervous? Sir. Sir, what? Are you about to call me an asshole? Sir, no, sir. How tall are you, Private? Sir, five foot nine, sir. Five foot nine? I didn't know they stacked shit that high. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh? Sir, no, sir. Bullshit, it looks to me like the best part of you ran down to cracking your mama's ass and ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. I think you've been cheated. Where in hell are you from anyway, Private? Sir, Texas, sir! Holy dog shit! Texas only steers and queers come from Texas, private cowboy! And you don't much look like a steer to me, so that kind of narrows it down. Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir! Are you a Peter Pupper? Sir, no, sir! I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a person in the ass and not even have the goddamn common courtesy to give him a reach around. I'll be watching you! <laughs> you must have left, I mean, in spite of it being a grueling production and two years, and Stanley's famous multiple takes, and you're in this this terrible environment with those get those gas belching refineries, and you guys thought you were taking your lives into your hands. You were doing this in a polluted. It was in, the most toxic place toxic, I've ever filmed toxic in my life. Environment. Well, in spite yeah. of all of that, you you must have had a couple of you must have had some laughs, and I found it interesting that he kept telling you and Arliss Howard, "You guys are going to miss me." Yeah. What an yeah, interesting said, thing for said, him to say. He said it to Arliss uh, when we when we wrapped the film, he said, you're you're going to miss me. And Arliss Howard said, of course, I'm going to miss you. I miss you already. He goes, no, he said, you're going to miss me. You're going to be on another person's film set and they're going to say, cut. We got it. Let's move on. And you're going to miss me because you're going to know that you didn't get it. And you're going to miss me. And and because I. Stanley would never walk away from a scene until he knew a hundred percent that he had got it, you mm -hmm. know, that, that whatever it was that he was looking at, whatever reason it was that he did so many takes, I don't know why. Um, maybe it was focused. Maybe the camera didn't move right. You know, when it was going down the track, you know, it's not just you and your performance that, that, that maybe didn't work. Maybe it's the other actor in the scene that the, maybe one was good. One performer was good and the other performer wasn't so good. And whatever, you know, but it's 
I, I having worked with Stanley Kubrick and worked on productions post Stanley Kubrick, um, you hear it more and more often where people say it's good enough. Let's let's move on. Mm -hmm. And good enough is the death of this art form. You know, it's good enough. It's good enough. Let's move on. And that's what Stanley he meant. That he he had created this unique environment where he worked away from the system. And he was, yeah. and he was, he had permitted himself. He put himself in that position to get a hundred takes, two hundred takes, whatever it took to get it right. And, and, yeah. and that's what he was saying. You guys are going to miss this kind of perfectionism. And yeah. I heard there are some directors, it's interesting, who purposely do a hundred takes to get the actors to stop acting. Yeah, yeah. It was it was afterward when I got when I got home here and I, I bought a book by Marvin Minsky called The Society of Mind. And Marvin Minsky was the person who coined the term artificial intelligence. And he talked about the, the process that we go through with learning. And I suppose in, in a way, it's kind of what uh, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm Gladwell, mm -hmm. uh, with that 10,000 hour, you right. guys, you guys know, but that, that you have to do something yeah, before you that. perfect it. Before, it before you perfect a, it. Yeah. So when you think of a, of, a, of a baby coming into the world and the process that the baby goes through of, uh, you know, that there's, you know, you're looking out at the world and you don't know that you have arms and legs, that you're just sort of connected to everything, right? When you come into the world and then you discover that you have these appendages and that you can suck on them with you. And then you realize that you have feet and then you start walking, you know, you fall down and you walk and you fall down and then you start running. And that this whole process to, to getting to the point where you can have a cup of tea on a, on, a, on a saucer and stub your toe as you're walking around the room and have enough muscle memory without thinking in a split second to tamp the, 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 the saucer and tea just enough so that you don't spill it, right? Mm -hmm. you, you just adjust because you've stubbed your toe and you, you adjust so you don't spill the tea. That all of that process takes, takes hundreds and hundreds of hours and and uh, to the, get to the point where you don't have to think about tamping the tea cup and the saucer to keep from spilling it. Are you, do you understand what, what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So uh, that's when I read the when I read that, I said, that's what Stanley was after. That's that was what filmmaking. Yeah. That you have to get the line so deep inside of you that like this conversation that we're having right now, that the, the words that I'm speaking are based on the experience of having lived through it so that I'm speaking, it doesn't sound like I'm acting. I'm just telling you a story about something that I experienced. And, and, and that's where he wanted the actors to be in their performance. He wasn't interested in real. He was interested in interesting. And that was something that he talked about with Jack Nicholson, he said, Jack, Jack had told him, he said, this is what people do in this situation. This is how they react. This is what they do. And Stanley said, yeah, okay, but that's not interesting. I'm not interested in what, what, you know, what might be real. I want to, I want you to do something that's interesting. Wow. Hard to argue with his, his methods because, mm. b because look at what he produced, you know, yeah. look at, look at the body of work. And it's crazy because every sing, single one of them, like like Vincent Van Gogh, yeah, 
uh, were dismissed. You know, Barry Lyndon was dismissed. Barry 2001, Lyndon, A Space Odyssey. People, that was the last premiere that he went to in New York. And people, including Rock Hudson, walked out of the theater and were saying insulting things as they walked by him. You know, like, what a stupid movie. They didn't get halfway through the movie and walked out. Um, uh, well, a lot of people dismiss Clockwork Orange, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do I, I'm, I'm exhausted. This is so much fun. And this, we've covered. Steven Spielberg. I mean, Stephen, Stephen King said that he hated the show. Oh, he did. That's right. He hated it so much. He, he remade it. It was terrible. That's right. That's right. An excellent point. And the whole time you're talking in my mind, I'm getting snippets of the theme song of private school (laughs) where I'm something like I'm with you and you're where together. We'll find it. (laughs) See, I don't know you as well as I thought I did, Gilbert. I thought you'd be obsessed on Jew as a verb. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's one of my favorite parts. (laughs) Matthew, we could go on. Oh, geez. You know, we talked about, but I want people to see your films too because we're talking about directors. We're talking about... uh, 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 Kubrick and, and Altman and, and Pakula and we didn't even get into uh, we barely got into Schlesinger and, and Spike Lee and, and Christopher Nolan and all these other wonderful people you worked with but let, let me tell them about your short films which people can get on iTunes which Adam Nelson uh, uh, your guy sent to me and, and I watched them all and they're terrific Thank you. And, and I, I must say I think I thought was wonderful wonderful piece of satire Thank but you. but um, but Jesus was a commie is something that people need to find and watch, yeah. Because it's a it's a uh, it's a thought provoking piece of work. It's it, the uh, To Kill an American. That too, I like that. I one think too. I think I thought and Jesus was a commie or, or kind of uh, it's a uh, what like I don't know a trifecta. It's a, it's it, they they one thing led to another. And it was when I was studying acting with Stella Adler, she had us read this book by Cahil Gibran, or Gibran, depending on where you're from, um, called The Prophet. And she said, we, we speak when we fail to be at peace with our thoughts. And uh, w- with the e- uh, event of 9-11 and how that impacted uh, our lives and mm-hmm. in the world, um, I was really not at peace with my, my thoughts. And I was downtown. I rode my bicycle down when it happened because uh, they said they needed people to triage and, uh, uh, you know, apply tourniquets and carry stretchers. And, and I, I learned all that in the Boy Scouts. So I went, rode my bicycle down there and, and then subsequently went down and gave water bottles you know, during, during the, and then, and then I couldn't go down there anymore because of, there were some horrible things that I experienced at, at the site. And I started going to Jacob Javits and the, the, the whole, the whole thing just raises more questions. I've done, I've done uh, three movies about Vietnam, it's Birdie with Alan Parker and Nicolas Cage. Mm, it's a good and, one too. Thank you. And we didn't uh, get to that and streamers and full metal jacket. And so, you know, when you're doing one of those movies, you, you read up about the war and you try to understand it. And uh, Michael Hare wrote, I think one of the best books about Vietnam ever, uh, about war ever called Dispatches about his experience in Vietnam and, and short timers that full metal jacket is based mm-hmm. on. And then, you know, just having grown up watching the war 
with Walter Cronkite when I was a little boy living in Utah. And, you know, it was something that was, that was over there. It was away from us. And then when my brother Mark uh, enlisted in the Navy, uh, and then my brother Michael and my sister Elizabeth, my, my brother Russell, uh, all of a sudden the war came home and it was something that uh, I was sort of uh, participating in now. And, and the, because I, I had an, in, uh, there was a, a family investment in, in, in it. But so what, what I tried to, been, tried to understand all this time is what were we doing and what, was, what, were, what were we fighting for? What was the purpose? What was, and you know, I, I, I love Muhammad Ali so much for his stance on the war and you know that that he was willing to give up his his career at the height of his career at the height of his strength to to protest that war yeah i've talked to richard dreyfus about it and he talked about the war at home that the that those people that were the conscientious objectors those people that were were protesting the college students who protested the war because they, they, there was no justification in their mind. And so the war, he, in, he, that he, the way that he talks about it, the war that was being fought at home was, was much more important than the war that was being fought overseas because, because what we were doing. And, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, that the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, that there weren't great, greater uh, protests here at home to, to because w- what was the purpose of that war? What were we trying to accomplish? What did we accomplish? And it's interesting. I was in a in a taxi with a, a Chinese fella today, and we were talking about the Chinese and how, rather than investing in in war, in implements of war, machines of war, that what if we'd have gone to Afghanistan and Iraq, and said we're going to build a hospital, we're going to build schools. And you know these are these are the conditions of using the hospital. Or if you can put conditions on on education and conditions on using the hospitals, but rather than uh, bringing a fist to a fight, bringing an open hand and saying, "Look, this Saddam Hussein fellow is not a good person, and, and we want to help the country," and you know to 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 do things with kindness rather than than that's, violence. That's that, kind of what Jesus is a, was a commie is about. The, yes. t- the title's a little misleading in a sense because it sounds it, it sounds maybe to some people like you're slamming religion or you're slamming Christianity, but it's actually a call for civility and kindness it's a, it and generosity. Yeah, purposely provocative title because if you said Jesus was a, was a nice kid from Bethlehem, right? But <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not so it's not so interesting. Our, our, uh, our yeah, listeners so, should see should find them. They're on iTunes. Yeah. People came and protested the movie when it came out. And I, I saw said, that. I know it's got it's it's a, you know I I gave it a, a title that it's very you know very confusing. I said, but I promise you, it's not really about Jesus or communism. It's it's about the problems that we we present to the world mm-hmm. and how we're we're never going to so- solve uh, these problems unless we find a, a peaceful way of of reaching across the aisle. And because we're talking about Kubrick, I I think that in a big way this was an influence from Stanley Kubrick that that if oh. you look at all of his movies they're in in some ways about this kind of stupidity especially Dr Strangelove or, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb um which he started is, out to make as a serious film about serious, that subject and then yeah, realized the, the absurdity the, was going was carrying the day yes he couldn't treat it seriously 
Yeah, but if we don't find peaceful solutions to the problems that that are at hand, that's that's what we're doing. We're riding like Slim Pickens that atomic bomb mm -hmm. at the end of uh, at the end of Doctor Strangelove. It's a good analogy. We'll meet again. Don't oh, know no. where. Don't, don't know, know when. <laughs> Beautiful film, and uh, and so is uh, uh, so is Jesus was a commie, which again people should find. Um, it's, a, it's an important piece of work. I'm not blowing smoke up your skirt. Last question, Matthew. Mark Edwards Edelstein. Who was more intimidating to work with, Kubrick, Altman, or Gottfried? <laughs> I'll never tell. <laughs> you don't kiss and tell, right, Gilbert? You don't kiss and tell. Tell that to the chimp. <laughs> There's so much here, Matthew, that we could have done. I mean, and we and we, we barely touched on orphans. We didn't uh, we didn't get into Birdie, but we will. I love that Alan Parker and and uh, and Kubrick both referred to each other as a prick. Which you'll explain. Maybe yeah. you'll explain yeah. that to us next time. Will you yeah. come back and play with us again? Yeah, absolutely. This was a yeah. fun one. Yeah, I'll tell you this really quick. This this story. Go ahead. So Alan Parker sends the clip to Stanley Kubrick, right? From Birdie. For Birdie, to, right. so I could, you know, get in the movie. And and then, uh, so I'm in London. I, I meet up with Alan Parker and to, to have a meal or, you know, I don't know, something. Yeah, I think just to have a meal. And uh, he goes, that's Stanley Kubrick. He's a cunt. I said, why do you say that? He goes, he never, he goes, you got cast in the movie and he never sent me a note to say thank you. And I said, well, you know, he's really busy directing the movie. I'm, I'm sure that he's just slipped his mind. I'm sure he's going to send you a note, Alan. Don't worry about it. So I go to see Stanley Kubrick and I say, Stanley, you got to send Alan Parker a note and say, say thank you. Alan Parker, that guy's a fucking cunt. And I said, why, why do you say that? He said, he sent me some scene with you and a guy standing in a doorway yelling at each other. He said, all it did was demonstrate that you had the ability to memorize lines and scream. He goes, he didn't tell me anything about you, your acting ability. He said, lucky for you, at the end of the scene, there is a scene of you sitting in this, I guess it's a mental hospital, and you're looking up and you don't say anything. You're just quiet. He goes, that's why I cast you. He goes, I saw that I saw that you had the ability to to say something without words. Wow. Oh. Wow. That's good stuff. Yeah, you know, and when you come back, Matthew, and and please come back and play with us again. Uh, you know, I saw you in the Criterion Closet, which I know happened not not long ago, and and you love Lumet. You were talking about Kurosawa. You were talking about Night of the Living Dead. Come back and talk about your favorite movies with us too, whenever you want. You know, <laughs> this you kid want. who grew I'd up be, on drive-ins. Yeah, yeah. Are, are there people listening right now? No, we're, no. we're not no. live. <laughs> oh, you no, just these no. were just questions. Nobody, no, but nobody has ever listened to this podcast. <laughs> we don't even actually record it. <laughs> it's just an excuse to get together to talk. Yeah, it's 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 actually therapy for the two of us. We're 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 alone <laughs> in a hotel room, yeah. and we'll talk about Jonathan Demi next time too, and Married to the Mob and Pacific Heights, and so much. You've done so much. You've done too much. I've done too much. Yeah. For us to wrap our arms around, let's thank a couple of people too. Uh, if, unless you want, you, you want to plug something, I know you did a movie with John Cleese and one with Liam Neeson. Uh, Are those yeah, coming I don't know out. What 
I don't know what the movie with Liam's called. I don't think they have a title for it yet. But okay. Liam, Liam's an old mate. We we've, we've been friends for thirty years, and and uh, it was it was just an excuse for me to be able to go and and see him. He was he's in Germany. He was making this movie. I was shooting Stranger Things, and the guy that was directing the episode, they called us to the set, and he said, "Come on, let's go. They're they're ready for us." I said, "I'll go with you if you give me a job in that Liam Neeson movie." And he came back about a half hour later and showed me his phone. And there was a message. He says, the producers think it's a great idea. And that's the first time that's ever happened that, that Gilbert, man, I'd love to work with you. And then you call me up next week and say, Matthew, I have this movie that we're going to do. Like, when does that, it never happens, right? People it. say, Gilbert, I love you. I want you to be in my movie. And then they, you never hear from them. Again. Yes. I love yeah. it. Well, that since, happens. That's that's the more common way, right? I, I I also love when a director or someone comes up to me and says, "Why weren't you in my last movie?" Because <laughs> you, you never fucking asked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and since you've brought up Liam Neeson, we're going to make Gilbert do his Liam Neeson for you, Matthew, as a, as a parting gift. Oh, which one? The the uh, you know the bit you do on stage. Oh oh. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw Liam Neeson's latest film. It's his 50th film where his daughter gets kidnapped. <laughs> and once again, he's on the phone with the kidnappers going, get me me daughter back. I want me daughter back and give me me lucky charms. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to, now that Matthew can hook you up, you can do that for Liam Neeson. Yes. We want to thank Jillian Neal, who helped make this possible, and Adam Nelson from, from Matthew's team. They've both been great and patient with us and, and wonderful. Matthew hung in there for almost a year. <laughs> and, and he's finally here, and it was worth the wait. And we'll thank our friends Dan Spaventa and Jim McClure here at Sirius, too, who, uh, who were instrumental in, uh, in getting this, uh, this ship launched. I, I'm exhausted from laughing. Yeah, this was a great one, Matthew. Well, I had a great time. Thank you okay. very much. So much. Thanks for being here and and being part of this this crazy cockeyed caravan. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we have been talking to a man whose tombstone is going to read, was once fucked by a monkey. <laughs> Only if you're the one carving it. <laughs> <laughs> the great Matthew Modine. Matthew, this was a, an absolute kick for us. Come back and, and, uh, and mess around with us again. There's so much more to do. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, pal. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays. I'm going to go make dinner for my wife now. That's that's a noble cause. When you